0: Welcome to another episode of the Straycast. My name is Dale O'Donnell, your host, and delighted again to be joined by Mike. Mike, how are you the past week?
1: Yeah, I'm good. I think I feel like the last week has been probably a trying one for everybody, to be quite honest.
0: <laughs> so we have football definitely coming back. We have, like I said, two weeks till, yeah. till it returns. Um, United are going to be up against Spurs by the looks of it away on a, on a Friday night. You think going into that game with the, the, the reports we're seeing about Pogba and Rashford, Back to fitness and training with the first team, it looks like we won't have a, a full strength side going out against Spurs.
1: Yeah, it seems so. Be interested to see uh, what state Spurs are in as well, because they were in a, an awful state really when um, the break happened. I don't know if is Harry Kane back fit for them now because he was injured, sure, wasn't he?
0: I, I wouldn't think so because there was fears that he wouldn't be even back for the European Championships if they went. Out. Yeah.
1: So, but uh, it'd be interesting to see what kind of state they're in as well. Um, yeah, I don't know what the um, I don't imagine I know what the match quality is going to be like. I know there's been permission that has been given for clubs to have friendlies, um, but it has to be within a certain a mile radius. So it against local teams. I mean, if I was United, and um, you'd be looking at I suppose teams like maybe like Oldham, uh, Bolton, and um, possibly maybe if there was any kind of closed door match or another uh, North West Premier League club possibly as well uh, uh, maybe someone co- like Leeds United It'd be. if United could manage it, it would be a really good um, I think friendly warm up
0: judging by the social media and United's official accounts what the players have been getting up to every day it's just pretty much stretching <laughs> every, <laughs> there's a stretch up in, uh, in picture form and they it show us some pictures of um, shooting or maybe something different but it's just stretching that's all we're getting at the moment um and just a lost and lost the strategy. <laughs> yeah. um so yeah so the, the main the main topic on this podcast today is the European Cup Winners' Cup final in 1991 against Barcelona we're going to dive into that very shortly just a, a story that popped up this week Mike. i know you enjoyed it it's a sound Liguez, um <clears throat> tease. he 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 dropped a bomb on on social media i think it was a sunday sunday evening saying that in 3 days time i'm going to be announcing my new club now he Seneguedes is a, is a player that's been heavily linked to Manchester United, I suppose, the best part of a year on and off. But but saying that the reports, um, not none of the kind of big English outlets have been have been reporting on it. It's mostly come from Spain, um, and some of the kind of Spanish kind of tabloidy websites. Um, that's where it kind of originated from. But Seneguedes is a hundred and fifty million release clause but the reports are now suggesting that because of the coronavirus and the financial impacts that's going to have on the transfer market they would accept something near to 80 million Um, and it's a big cut and he he is a high quality player so United fans when he dropped this bomb on on social social media it was a frenzy almost they were they were getting excited even Rio Ferdinand was dropping emojis in response to it and kind of adding fuel to the fire but it turned out Mike that he was just announcing a, a new club that himself and his brother are are launching Nelche which is basically for kids between the age of four and eighteen um and to help the the local I suppose local kids and community. So this dropped a bit of a it was a frenzy but it turned out to be just nothing but a tease Mike. Yeah,
1: it was a genius bit of marketing actually for for some of the guys and it's actually a really nice project what they what him and his brother have launched. It's basically an academy team essentially. Um which so it's a nice thing that he's done. But yeah, I, I thought it was hilarious. One of the things that I really. Um, the, the only reason I wanted football to start again is it would just stop the two months of incessant transfer speculation. It's everything I hate about the closed season and football pre season is that people just talk about who we're going to get, who we're going to get. It's just it's complete nonsense, and oh, I feel it's, it's, it's even more in the context of everything else that's going on. I just find it a little bit churlish, really. I,
0: I will say one thing on that because it, that might be fine for now, but there, there's no real we're not being told much about the transfer market and what's going to happen to that. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if they are planning on. Resuming football now, getting it done by the time that they can restart. Then again for the new season, we're not being told that I'm about a break either. Uh, apparently, there could be plans that to end the season and jump straight in then to new season because teams can't do their pre-season tours. That that that's crazy. That's crazy for for the players, and you're gonna get more injuries. But they're counting that would allow for five substitutions in these games. This is the whole thing with the transfer market. What's going to happen with that? There's a possibility they could have it open between the summer and to January. That's a long transfer to, to, allow, to allow for teams to maybe kind of structure their finance better, not having a space of just two months where they have to rush deals and they could end up spending money that they don't have. You know, It, it might allow for more financial stability if it was open longer. But, yeah. but that means we're going to be open to several months of transfer rubbish. But, the, but the, that'll feed the masses on social media. That'll feed the teenagers on, on Twitter.
1: Yeah, I think the only fair way, really, um, in terms of having a transfer, you know, would be to either, I think, just have it open for the entirety of next season and pre-season, which is what you used to have, of course, or don't have it at all and have no transfers next season. Everyone sticks with the squads that they have. Um, you know, free agent signings only. But can you, imagine,
0: um, can you imagine clubs that are in situations where they're in a transition? There's no way they'd agree to that.
1: Yeah, so you keep it open for the entire season then and you have a full open season on transfers, which probably would actually be... Um, you may actually see some better business being done in the transfer market by clubs, as you uh, pointed to before, because there'll be a little more due diligence from clubs in who they're signing. Um, I personally... I particularly, I'm not a fan of the January transfer window. I personally think you should only have a transfer window over the summer. Um in my personal opinion, that maybe runs literally from the 1st of June all the way until, um, say, 30th of August, and that should be a worldwide thing, and I, it should be kept as that. Because the transfer windows is
0: kind of a mess. I've talked about right this now. before, what you just said there, but not having it in January, and having it just in the summer. But if you, if you don't have it in January, it would be interesting to add that you can only make loan signings. So that's when players, then if they join... Join their new clubs that summer and it doesn't quite work out and they, they're in search of a loan deal to get some football to kind of rejuvenate their career. But then it doesn't allow them players to mass spend midway yeah. through the season. They have to get their business done in the summer. It would be interesting just to allow the loan loan deals because also the likes of it, the Di and players that have been playing in China and different des- destinations where, where the league started at different times of the year. It allows yeah. those players to keep the... The possibility open to, to move during the their their off season months and to, to gain a fitness.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's that's a very good point. Um, I think you also. I just want to sort of segue. You also touched upon something else that happened this last week, which is obviously the announcement of Odion Ighalo staying with the club. Yeah, it's great news. Yeah, I think one of the challenges that um, United have had to take on um, this season and that. Ole has had to take on probably more than he should have to, is to make the team likable again to the fans. I mean, that's been a big challenge because I don't really think fans have felt warmly towards the team for quite some time. And I think you look at someone like Agarlo, who clearly loves the club and just wants and loves to be there, and he's really happy to be there. And I think actually in what we saw of him was very, very good before the lockdown, even if he was a bit of a last minute signing. Four goals that,
0: and three starts.
1: Yeah, really, really good player, you know. Um, and offers something you know offers United something up front that they don't have in then a more natural in terms of that he's a more natural focal point yeah. at the front. And um I think there's even with Rashford fit, there is very much a place of him even in the starting eleven for games because Actually, you could quite easily have Rashford coming in off the left well, he and having you, a gallop through the middle.
0: He gives you a different outlet up front, and that's something I think Solskjaer really needed. He need, he's, yeah. he, he's needed a centre-forward who is more maybe not as much finesse as Martial and Rashford, but someone that's more of a bully inside the box, that's yeah. more, perhaps more aggressive, that's willing to fight to get into those positions. Yeah. But I'm not going to lie and say I wouldn't have lost sleep if... Shanghai were extra reluctant and said that, look, unless you're going to sign him permanently, we're, we're not open to a loan deal. I think I would have understood that. And I wouldn't have um, lost sleep over it if they suggested that they need a 20 billion firm. I think that yeah, would have a lot of money. But I wouldn't have lost sleep over it. I'm very happy he's staying. I think he does offer us something. He's proven that in his short time at the club. And, and a really important aspect is that he's someone that loves being at Man United. And as you said, Solskjaer, is looking to make the team likeable again. He knows if the team is at least likeable and we're not getting the results and we have a dip in form, fans are less likely to turn uh, if, if they if they like what they're seeing. If they're seeing a graft put in, if they're seeing the players that are wearing the shirt putting a, a real graft in. That makes a difference and that's what Solskjaer is definitely working towards. A nice, likeable team.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, I
0: think you mentioned,
1: maybe I misheard, but I'm sure you mentioned Louis Saha when we were talking about this before. And he's quite a similar player, actually, Galo. He is—he's a powerful player, but he is. Let's not do him a disservice. I think he's technically a very good player as well. And I always remember Louis Saha when we brought him in. He had a big impact on the team when he came in because when he was fully fit and firing, he was virtually unplayable. He was one of the best natural number nines that actually I'd actually seen when he was fit. And I think Galo has many of those same attributes um, about him. I know things sort of. Uh, basically fizzled out at Watford but I don't know if Watford's just one of those clubs where there's a fairly sort of short period of time on on getting uh, you know a players qualities out I and mean, with a constant chopping and changing the managers sometimes it can be difficult for players to maintain consistent form but I, I wonder with Shanghai whether they acquiesced in the end because Agarlo and his agent made it quite clear that look, I'd like, I, I want to go back and I'm going to kick up a big fuss if you don't let me go back.
0: I think there's also some ruling too with foreign players returning to China. The Chinese league, um, I think there's some, there may be some ban on on how long they have to go in and, and isolate. <clears throat> so Shanghai, were kind of thinking, well, look, he might as well stay there if he's not going to be allowed to play. Um, but, but but yeah, look, I think it's a good move. You know, I also think with Marcus Rashford now, Fit and training with the first team, and he's going to have the presence of a gallo around Carrington. I think the likes of a gallo and his experience, and and the way he's come in, and he he he, he leaves off a good impression. I think he he might teach the likes of Martial and and Rashford traits that they that they lack, and those traits mm-hmm. that I'm on about are the aggression and and what to what to be doing with your movement inside the box. You you, list, you we, we spoke to to Luke Chadwick on the podcast this week. And when you speak to former players and they talk about being in the dressing room, they always talk about little tips that players will give them, the more senior players. Ryan Giggs had given Luke Chadwick tips. And I think having a gala around, we've seen following his loan, loan move in January that Anthony Martial was scoring goals again. He, yeah. he, he was in flying form. And he, he's someone that also gets a lot of criticism, Anthony Martial, because... There just seems to be this kind of, kind of mini civil war on Twitter between Team Martial and Team Rashford. Like They're two fantastic players. They're two players that probably need to be motivated in different ways. But Rash- Rashford really stood up to the plate this season before he picked up his injury. I can't yeah. wait to have him back. And a Martial, who seemed to get a kick up the backside when gallo came in and that's that's what Solskjaer wants players fighting for their place, and if they can learn a bit from gallo, it's a super move for United to get him in until January
1: yeah I agree I think the thing with Martial is you know obviously um, you know I, I think you know, managers need to be able good managers need to be able to understand they need to take different approaches with different people and Martial is a more introverted character who maybe just needs um a little bit more of an arm around him, or does not need someone to be very publicly criticising him. Yeah. And one thing I would credit Solskjaer for is he never, he he's rarely, if ever, taken. You know, I'm sure he's laid into the players several times. In fact, in fact, it's been said some of the players have said that he has, but he's never ever done that publicly. He'd always stuck up for the players, um, shown some real class. And I think that's helped a lot, actually, in galvanising the changing room overall in that it's built a bit of a siege mentality In the players will go, OK, we know business is going to be handled in-house. But I also know that, you know, when I make a mistake, I'm rather than me being slated in the media, I'm going to give a, be given the opportunity to work hard on the training ground, get on with that work and prove myself and get back into the team. And I think that's been a big thing for why we see Martial get better because it's well. I'm sure he may have there may be I'm sure there was some stone from Solskjaer, and the coaches staff to towards him, but it was done behind closed doors. Mm. And I think it's always better to do this stuff behind closed doors because I just think slaughtering people publicly, you know, it's almost tantamount to bullying for me. You know, the way that Mourinho used, was handling some players was just. You can't—it's beyond the pale, and it really wrecks any. It wrecks a lot of the morale in the changing room. So, yeah, and uh, you know, experience, and um, I think United maybe needed a little bit of experience head with gallo coming in as well, and I think that's why Maguire also brings some of that experience as well, which is why Solskjaer gave him the captaincy because he recognised this was a guy who has some experience. He's played in the World Cup for England. He's a key part of the of a good national team he's a key part of a good Leicester side this is a guy that I need to be you know um, this is a guy who's going to be able to step up and lead the team and I think that's what Solskjaer is looking for and I think that's why Bruno Fernandes has been a help as well because you see him he's a guy who's got senior experience and he's also someone who is willing to put himself out there as someone who leads by example and by the way that he carries himself
0: you mentioned a, a very important aspect of Solskjaer's management here about the way in which he, he deals with such situations and doesn't go publicly. I don't particularly have a problem with a manager going public, but, but I, I, I can't I can't discredit Solskjaer on what he's done thus far. You speak to anyone with an inside track and they tell you that he's well able to, to give, as Ferguson would say, the hairdryer treatment. He's well able to give that. If, if people aren't pulling their weight, he's able to pull players aside and speak to them. But it's the, it's, it's the manner in which you do that, and I think... Certain managers have been able to pull off being very um, headstrong and such. You know, Mourinho at Chelsea it worked in his favour. Mourinho at FC Porto it worked in his favour. It doesn't always work. <clears throat> and I think United, post Ferguson, had had characters come in. You had Louis Van Hal, you had Jose Mourinho, who I think have reputations within the game. And from from what I could gather, is they were setting their ways. Ways in which has previously made them successful, but, but ways in which they, 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 they weren't very flexible. And I think if, if you get, gather stories of, of, of players and their dealings with managers, players are very different people. You have a squad of 23 or so men. It, everyone is different. And I think w- what I can gather from Solskjaer so far is he knows who he can push buttons with and he knows how to keep people on side, And you have, if you have players with that mentality and they're, and they're fighting for, for you... That, that, that's not too different to what Alex Ferguson had you know Alex Ferguson was able to give the hairdryer treatment he would go public at times but the players always had respect for him there was more to there, yeah. there was more to him than being let's per say a, a, mo- a moody Mourinho
1: yes yeah I mean it's um, it's interesting because I look at someone like Luke Shaw as an example Now Luke Shaw did get criticism off Louis Van Gaal, but Luke Shaw responded to Louis Van Gaal in a really positive way. Yes. yes. Before he broke his leg, he was probably United's best player before he got that injury that early on that season. Um, So it was the reason Shaw responded to Van Gaal is because while Van Gaal said stuff publicly, he'd also it was also very clear that that it was that Van Gaal had made it clear to Shaw privately, just maybe in just his actions that he was gonna put trust in him on the pitch. And Solskjaer has done the same thing with Shaw. Sure. I never would have had Luke Shaw someone who could play on the left sided centre half of a back three.
0: I think Luke sure Justin too. changes
1: game and suddenly I've seen a guy, he's like a trans, he's completely transformed. He can, he acts in a completely different way to what he used to. He's obviously he's a little bit older, I think, which helps a lot, but he seems to um he, he seems to be a little bit... I don't know quietly in terms of not talking, but in terms of um, he seems to lead a little bit more by example um, just by, again, how he carries himself and how he conducts himself and the way he's developing his game. Now, that's, that's, a big, that's a big thing, and I'm looking at what Solskjaer is doing with players. What I've liked is that he's encouraging them to develop their game. I look at someone like Fred, who was written off by Failure, but Solskjaer stuck with him publicly and always, and look at Fred. Now, Fred is someone that United fans have become really fond of because he's been a good player.
0: Well, you've got to remember too, footballers aren't tuned like robots. People like to think they are. People like to think when a player comes. Human beings. Yeah, the, the people like to think that they come when they join a club that they're they're tuned also almost manufacturally and, and then and they, they, they've all the good habits. And that, that certainly was not true with Luke Shaw. Luke Shaw came to Manchester United with a number of bad habits, um, there were things at Carrington in which Louis van Gaal had to pull him aside and, 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 and cut, and not only cut for Luke Shaw but ensure that fizzy drinks and all that and chips weren't to be had at Carrington anymore, he made those decisions to better one player and I think when, when you listen to Luke Shaw now talk about his time under van Gaal, van Gaal a disciplinarian but but in a huge way, Shaw has a lot of respect for him. and, and, and Van Gaal knows
1: how to handle young
0: players.
1: Yeah. He's always been very good at that. He seemed to be able to, even with a disciplinarian, but the way he did it was that young players responded to him. And I think they responded to him because he gave them time on the pitch. He would play them. He's like, Van Gaal would say, if you respond to this, what I'm telling you, you are going to play. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there'd be no question. Whereas Mourinho... That was never the case. Marino never had any... Because Van Gaal appreciated, that as disciplinarian as he was, there is a development curve with young players and they may make mistakes.
0: I think that's very important. But also working
1: with them because they were able to soak up, up information really quickly and he could um, develop them. Not just... One of the things Van Gaal always likes and that I always like in players, and I'm seeing actually some of this with Solskjaer, was that he likes guys who are able to go out onto the pitch and solve problems themselves mm-hmm. don't need someone to do it for them. Um, and he likes young players because he could develop them mentally to be able to go yeah. and do that. And I see that with Luke Shaw now. I, Mourinho really almost evolved that. But, yeah, no, it's, it's no question. You look, Matt, listen, um, you know, bringing in you look, the young players, quite a few young players we have in our squad now, some key young players came through or came into the club when Van Hal was the manager. And obviously, while he wasn't the right man in the end, there was some good stuff that was done there. Even Mourinho did some good stuff at the club. As yeah. much as I can't stand the guy, they just weren't the right men. And you were talking about guys being set in their ways. I said this so many times. United had to forget going for a big name. They had to go for the right fit for the club yeah. to forward to where it needed to go, which is, I always, I was always a big... Believer in Pochettino being a great choice for United because I think he he would he would still be a good fit even now.
0: Can can I just say too? With all we've covered on this episode so far about Solskjaer and and what he's developing at Manchester United, I do think he's a long-term manager, and I think that for some of the reasons that we've mentioned so far, and I was a massive ag- advocate of having Pochettino when when Jose Mourinho was fired. Now I'm thinking hindsight's a wonderful thing that solskjaer may go on and do better than what so- Pochettino would have done I, I, I think there's a mass there's, there's something long term about what he's building there's um and and, and also there's, there's never going to be a fear no matter how successful solskjaer is as manchester manager that he'll ever leave the club there will always be a fear with Pochettino, because i I'm, i i've no doubt in my mind that he has objectives in his career to manage the likes of PSG and, and maybe to go home and manage in Argentina, you know. I, I, I'm sure he has those ambitions. With Storcher, I, I believe that if he, if he could sit in that Manchester United job until the day he dies, he would.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And I suppose that kind of ties into the game we're going to talk about today in terms of developing something for the long term.
0: Absolutely. And let's get started on it. So United played Barcelona in the European Cup Winners' Cup in 1991. It's a game that I think United fans watching back, I know we, we certainly did, you get a buzz off it every time, and, and, and the buzz on which which followed after the final was surreal. Let's talk about Barcelona's dream team as we get started, Mike, because they were stocked with some impressive names. Even though they had lost their goalkeeper and start striker to injury, they still boasted talents like Michael Laudrup, Ronald Koeman, uh, and Baccaro, you know. Incredible side managed by young young Yeah,
1: yeah Bageristan as well. Uh Chia. I mean <laughs> they lost Stoichkov, but the replacement was Julio Salinas. It <laughs> was also a really, really good centre forward. And you also have people like Alachenko and um, Albert Ferrer, Um yeah, I mean it was it was a great side. This was the first year of you would call, was the dream team era of Barcelona. So this was the first, this was the, this season they won the first of, first of four league titles in a row. For some context about, listen, the league is a great league now, but I mean, you're talking back then, Real Madrid had a great team.
0: They won five was league titles headed, in a row, Real Madrid, before that season. Yeah,
1: headed by the Quintadel del Buttre, which, you know, was a group of players that had come through. Um, the Youth Academy which was led by Emilio Butragueño, who's one of the greatest footballers that Spain has ever produced and you also have people like Mitchell uh, was at the club I think Bernd Schuster was there as well who'd left Barcelona after a huge dispute that had happened about a year before Cruyff came in um, uh, also Deportivo La Coruña had a good side in the early to mid-1990s um, There was a lot of you know, it was a strong league and as we've spoken about before, when we talked about older games, even back here in the 1990s, there was what I would say was a more uh, even and fair distribution of great players across a wider um, cross-section of teams. They weren't all concentrated at a few elite clubs like you have now, which was what made this Barcelona team even more extraordinary at the time. Um, I mean, their starting lineup for the game, you had um, Ferrer, he was playing at left back. He could also play at right back. Um was really, really good in either position. Um the Spanish Dennis Irwin. That's what that's what I'm gonna who call. Who actually out plays better.
0: right back in this game Yeah, Yeah, he
1: does, yeah. Um I think Clayton Blackmore was at left back for this game. Mm. Um you had Kuman obviously, who was nominally a defender, but he sort of just played anywhere, really. Ronald Kuman just played wherever he pleased. Um Alachenko, you had Nando who we'll get onto later, he had a t- terrible, he really yeah. had a bad night. Nando, Mark Hughes just absolutely rinsed him. Um, and you also had, then you basically had what can only be described as, what, a front six? Um, Eusebio Sacristán, who played sort of like the, what, 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 the role that Guardiola would then play when he came into the team the next season. And it was only the next season when this Barcelona team won the Champions League. And then you have Baquero, Laudrup, Gokce, Bagueristan and Salinas. That's a really good team. And you, they, I, um, there was, it's interesting. Um, no one gave United much of a chance in this game, and I don't know if how much of a chance United fans would have given them in this game. You
0: see, you, have, you have to mention that because this was a big step up for United. Like Barcelona came into this game yeah. on a massive high after winning the Spanish division. United had to 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 get to the final we had to overcome teams like and excuse my pronunciation Pesky, Munskas, Wrexham Montpellier and League Warsaw you know what
1: I mean yeah and Barcelona to get to this stage had faced Dynamo Kiev in the quarterfinals this was a Dynamo Kiev side that was arguably the best team in the Soviet Union they were managed by Valery Lobanovsky, who's probably one of the greatest football coaches that's ever lived um, and then in the semi-finals, they faced the Juventus team, which I believe had Roberto Baggio in it. So they had a tougher run to this final than we did. That's for sure.
0: But just to say this to add some context to, to the match as well, around 25,000 United fans travelled to Rotterdam <laughs> in the pour and rain for this game. The weather wasn't very good. Uh, it was the first season English clubs have been allowed back into European football after a yeah, five-year right, ban. Yeah following the Heysel disaster, so like you'd imagine going into this game, the authorities and the police would have been nervous about how the United fans were going to behave, but I did look into it, and I checked any reports from back in 1991, uh, and it showed that they had nothing to be worried about.
1: I think, um, I believe, now I know a couple of people, including an uncle that went to this game, um, my dad didn't go, he couldn't go, I think he was sort of in a, quite a lengthy spell of unemployment at this point, but... Um, I believe the uh, just down the road in Amsterdam. I believe the red light district is roaring trade in those few days. Um, I've been reliably informed. Um, I mean, I don't know. You, you may. I think you may have read the same piece I read, which was Andy Mitten's piece looking back at the game in the National, which is a really, really good piece going back. And um, I mean, he was on a podcast recently talking about the game and just the whole week and everything. Um, you know and. The atmosphere at the game. I, I love the Dakota Stadium. It's a great stadium. It's, it, it produces a fantastic noise, but it did feel like a home game for United. Like I know it says twenty-five thousand, but it felt like there was more. They certainly heavily outnumbered the Barcelona fans. I think it was yeah. at least two to one, and you really got that in this game because the noise from the United fans oh, the was incredible. Yeah, oh, absolutely. it was astonishing, absolutely astonishing, and um, yeah, the pouring rain. Um, we can't, we, can't, uh, we is... can't
0: really we can't really talk about this game at all without mentioning, of course, the piece that was published today by yourself on on News dot com. The icons of Old Trafford with Mark Hughes, um, it's that's an unbelievable story. Really, it's kind of a love hate affair. But hate hates a strong word. I don't. I don't. There's any kind of hate here because
1: it's more of an antipathy. I think yeah, rather than a hate. Absolutely. I think. But he. I think by the time he left Southampton, um, I. Feel everyone felt that way towards him because we just wanted to see the back of him for a while. But he was, he was, he'd had a miserable spell at Barcelona. He went over there. I'm not really sure when you, it depends who you were to speak to about it. But Hughes maybe didn't go to Barcelona entirely willingly at the time. Um, so Teddy Venables had not long been in charge, he brought Gary Lineker over as well. I think Steve Archibald came in, the Scottish centre-forward, he did really well at Barcelona around at the same time. So there was a decent British contingent that he brought in at Barcelona. But Lineker and Archibald did really well. Hughes had a miserable time. I mean, he scored four goals. And then um, the next season, I mean, he wanted to go. Uh, he was long to Bayern. And he started to sort of get his form back at Bayern Munich.
0: Just, just to give another mention to Andy Mitten on the United We Stand podcast. He had Mark Hughes on as a special interview there last week. And he spoke briefly about his time at, at Barcelona and the difficulties. And it had a lot to do with the way in which he played, which he describes as United fans would, would know what he's talking about. And the way he he was the centre forward. That was never going to work in Spain. And and it wasn't yeah. too it wasn't too long before the defenders in which he was facing... Caught on to the fact that they could they could kind of take advantage of the way he wanted to play uh, and be sneaky, as, as a lot of people would say. You watch the way um, Sergio Ramos plays, um, shit house, or you might describe it. But but they, they caught on to him, and that made his his that kind of had his career hit a kind of a standstill, and he he needed something different. So the return to United to kind of gave him that, and that's what did this match. To be honest, if you look back and you consider Mark Hughes's career, this is the most important game of his career.
1: Absolutely. And that was why my piece, it was almost the centre of point and and the pivot for that whole piece. I wanted to really focus on that more heavily in his playing career, even though he was fantastic in the two seasons that we won the league, the back-to-back league titles and the double in the partnership with, well, it wasn't even a partnership. It was, you know, it was essentially, it it was like an attacking quartet, basically, of Concelsis, Giggs, Cantona and Hughes. But, I mean, some of our younger listeners, and I did want to mention this in a piece, but obviously there was only so much I could get in, who may not have seen Hughes as a player or only saw him at the end of his career where he was more of a deep-lying midfielder. Hughes is very similar to... Didier Job was a very similar player to Mark Hughes. Very, very similar. Can act as a physical focal point of the attack, but also very clever, off-the-ball movement, outstanding, great timing, um, fantastic technique. Um and just like a bloody mindedness uh, you know I always think in, and the reason and Jogba had many of those qualities Now, Drubber, I know Jogba could be more of, of a shithouse but Mark Hughes wasn't wasn't exactly um, he wasn't averse to maybe um, slightly elbowing opposition defenders when he was off <laughs> when the referee wasn't looking but that was just how it was then you know and forwards had to give that out hey, Alan Shearer used he, he, to he was, it as well and Alan Shearer talked about the treatment that and Ian Wright was another one who i, I big fan of being right and and those guys always said the treatment we got off the defenders it's like you had to give that back because otherwise you would get eaten alive that was what would happen to you so Hughes was a product of that environment you know he came into the United team in the early to mid-80s as as an academy player Mm. and you know he was basically put straight in by Ron Atkinson he at that point the, the partnership was Frank Stapleton and Norman Whiteside and Norman Whiteside was this Norman Whiteside was an incredible talent but he's, he had some terrible injuries that finished him had he, had he not he would have um he may have still been in the United team when we won the league I mean that he would quite conceivably have still been there um but he was moved into midfield the United fans are thinking moving him into midfield but it was Sid Owen who was the youth coach who'd said to Atkinson to who'd moved Hughes up front because he was a midfielder but thought he'd be better front. And um, the way he's able to, obviously, all of those attributes that he had, he was able to then work as, as almost a sounding board for attacking players. And I think you saw that in this game, especially Lee Sharp and Brian McClay, who were able to run off him. And then you saw later on, you know, like Ryan Giggs and Andre Kinchelskis as well. Um, or we, When we did the Barcelona Champions League game several weeks back, he was brilliant in that game. I mean, he just tormented Barcelona's defence. But in the first half, after saying this game, he was kind of anonymous. He didn't do that much. Um, I don't know whether he was nervous or just the pattern of the game at that point. He was kind of cagey. I think United didn't want to go too gung-ho. Although I still think we were the better team in the first half.
0: Let's not forget, um, too. He might have been prone to giving an elbow. But in the second half of this game, he gets an absolute... A really bad. Well, challenge. we'll get
1: we'll get on to this. Um, now obviously, Nando did get red carded for a professional foul. Jose Baqueiro should have been sent off, yeah, he should have been red carded in that second half. He was very lucky, and you could see. I think who was the co commentator? Was he Gordon Banks? I think it might have been Gordon Banks, but well, I can't remember. I'm not but too he sure, was but, saying, I,
0: but I remember I, said, I sent you a message on this when I was watching the game that. I've never in my life heard of Steve Bruce being named Stephen Bruce, as, as the commentator um, alluded to <laughs> on the thing. I
1: was a big fan of that, yeah. Um, somebody who also had a great game, by the way, in this game. Steve Bruce was fantastic but, in this. But,
0: but the, the game itself, okay, the, the, there wasn't a ton of opportunities in this in, in this match. Um, no, but, but, no, but, I would
1: describe it as it was a high-quality game, Yeah, played at a really high level. I remember Gary Neville talked about this before when um, sort of the Premier League was going through this period where it wasn't quite as good. And yeah. Gary Neville was on Monday Night Football saying that t- there was too many chances in games because the organisation and the defending was really poor and there wasn't any good general organisation. And he compared that with where the Liga was at that point. Lots of like pressing and little tight spaces to play in. There was a lot of that in this game. And it was really when united scored the first goal it opened everything up a little you know united got two goals quickly you know a little bit like that fa cup final where you suddenly everything kind of just happened in a very short space of time and i felt barcelona almost lost the shape a little bit um I, I, can we just go through this united starting lineup before yeah
0: because
1: yeah, it's almost like this is you you're talking this is um I mean, this was—it was originally you that came up with the idea to cover this game because everyone talks about the FA Cup the year before in 1990. But I think you're right that this was a much more important game to Ferguson's long-term development and staying at Manchester United because mm. this is a step up. This is a big European night. It's the first season the English clubs are back in Europe, and we're playing, arguably, not the best team in Europe at this point. That would still be Milan or maybe Red Star, but one of the top three or four teams in Europe, Barca. Certainly were at this point in time. So, this was a huge game for United. And it was a chance for Ferguson to sort of re-establish himself on the European stage as a manager, like he did at Aberdeen in the early 80s when they won the Cup Winners' Cup and they beat Bayern Munich and Real Madrid to go and win it. And this was the same thing. And... Um, it's a little bit of fondness. Obviously, Les Sealy played in goal in this game. They weren't sure he was going to play. I don't, I don't think he looked Sealy...
0: OK. I don't think he, no, he looked No, okay. he had a
1: knee injury coming yeah. into the game. And it was mentioned in the commentary, actually. I think Brian Moore mentioned it more than one occasion. You could see he wasn't moving quite as no. as he was, which is great. a testament to how good the defence was in this game. Which you had Denny serving at right-back, as you said. Clayton Blackmore at um, left-back. And you have Pallister and Bruce in the middle, who would be the cornerstone of United's defence up until the end of the 95-96 season, um, when it was finally broken up when Bruce left at the end of that season. It's
0: um, on on record that Johan Cruyff passed comments prior to the game and uh, kind of said, passed remarks even, that, that Bruce and Pallister really couldn't pass the ball. Um which, which is are, a nonsense. Yeah, you see you see in the open stages the ball he played for Brian McClare which he should have yeah. which look was an, <laughs> unfortunate. Yeah. But that pass from Pally, I sent you a message about it, that was incredible.
1: Palace was always seen as a good passer of the ball, which is bizarre and, and um Steve Bruce wasn't too bad either. And Steve Bruce, by the way, was a really potent attacking threat in the opposition box set pieces. Mm. Um, could also take penalties, Steve Bruce's overlooks. So it was one season at United. Oh, maybe the season before or the season after, he scored about twenty goals. It was incredible. Uh, it's a centre half, um, and then in the midfield you had Mike Phelan and staggering the awful mustache, playing on the on the right hand side. Um just the worst. It was terrible. He looked like um, this. Will only really some of our older uh, listeners will get this, but he looked like a character in the Bill called Tosh. Um, that's he's just, it's a spitting image of him, like the receding hairline and this big mustache. Um, he looked looked like he walked out of a 70s uh, TV cop show and then you had Lee Sharp on the left who people forget Lee Sharp was a really important player for United and was sort of a key in United becoming the best team in the country Um, even if maybe I think the thing with Sharp was he maybe didn't kick on and become the player that we all thought he was going to he didn't quite make that leap that maybe somebody like Ryan Giggs did Um, and then a fantastic midfield pair Paul into Brian Robson who was just yeah. brilliant in this day, Fant- just you know two incredible all round you know you talk about what midfielders could do these two guys could do it all they could do everything you needed to I would say technically Robson was the better footballer of the two I think um, and the pass he lays on for the second goal is just one of the best oh, passes of all yeah. I've ever seen far, um, and far then-
0: superior in a technical sense
1: yeah, oh, God, yeah. I mean, Ince was still excellent, mm. don't get me wrong. And, and like I said, they were someone who could operate as holding midfielders and they could operate as attacking midfielders. They could operate as playmaking midfielders. They could do anything that you needed to do. Um, and then you had Mark Hughes and Brian McClare up front. Sort of a 4-4-1-1, I think, would be the best way to describe how United played. But Which was sort of the default Ferguson... Everyone said 4-4-2, but it was always with Ferguson he preferred... The 4-4-1-1, four, four, one, one. he liked to have a guy up front and someone playing just off him to drop between the lines, which is what McClure used to do. He could drop back into the lines and then make, like, runs into the box um, that couldn't be picked up by defenders. Now, obviously, Brian McClure would become more of a squad, squad player, and he wasn't as good as Cantona or Teddy Sheringham would come in later on. But he was still a good player. He was a good pro, and he was a great player to have in the squad. Um, so I looked at that and I was like, Actually, that's not a bad team that United had out in this game. There's seven really good players in there. Well, you we must, I, we must
0: uh, add, too, it's not a bad team, but it can't really be considered either. Can I consider it a great team and considering that it wasn't winning league titles yet? It, no, would, they it, would, it would the following season. Yeah, exactly. It was on the cusp of becoming a, a world class team, I believe.
1: Yes, I think so. And obviously, the, the season after, where they blew that lead in the league against Leeds United. Um, a league title that they should have won, but they didn't score enough goals was the long and short of it. They had a great defence, they had the best defence in the league, but they didn't score enough goals. Mm. Which was... Um, and, you know, people. even though I himself was not a 30-goal season player, what he was able to do, was able to open up a game to give other players the opportunity to score. And obviously, Andre Kincelskis, was a more potent goal threat than Mike Phelan, to be quite blunt about it. Um, Phelan was more of a... He was a workhorse. He was a runner. You know, he was a good guy to have in the squad, close people down, work hard. But Andrzej Czachowski was just a different level of footballer completely. So it was kind of, it was a good team missing two or three pieces to really make a step up. It's, I feel it's almost a little bit like where United are now, and they finished sixth in the league this season. United they didn't have a great season. Um, I think there was still a level of pressure on Alex Ferguson. But it was stuff like this that maybe alleviated that pressure. It was the fact that we could go out and go toe-to-toe with a team like Barcelona, who were a great team, and we could beat them. It was showed that there is something there. It just needs a little bit more time.
0: United were the, the better team in the first half. Um, the game remained goalless, but it took 23 minutes for the first goal to, to come. Um, they got the reward after a lot of hard work, and I suppose it came to from you was being failed on the the edge of the box. Barcelona weren't really holding back, were they? There was a lot lot of challenges going in, which I think we'd agree were rough.
1: Yes, very much so. Um, Barcelona were the dream team, but they didn't mind giving people a kick. Um, I mentioned Julio Salinas. He was a pretty physical centre-forward. Julio Salinas is Basque, and the Basque region tends to produce specific types of... They do have always traditionally valued physicality and aggression and athleticism and that is what they'd always brought to the Spanish setup, those Bass players. You know, Andy Herrera is an example of what Bass players tended to bring to the table. They have a spikiness him and heads to them and Julio Salinas in this game was really you know, he was um, because he was kind of up against Hughes and uh, sorry, Bruce and Pellis on his own. And he was trying to give as good as he got, even though he never really managed to get the best of them. They, they marshalled him too well and maybe stopped him getting the ball as much as he would have liked to bring in the other players into the game. Um, and I also think great work on keeping Mal- Michael Laudrop relatively quiet in this yeah. game because he was probably the best player in Europe at this point.
0: As well as that, like the, the goal itself, uh, listen to the commentary. And it, it, it seems to be, it's back quite a debate as to who claims the goal come on why after replay after replay I don't mean to, to bring any conflict on the podcast but that, that's that's you putting the ball in the back of the net crossing the line yeah
1: so let's, let's go into it it's a, it's a free kick by United um, and Robson um, it's, it's a really clever play by Robson he sees Barcelona have not got themselves organised and he takes it quickly sees Bruce is up there and Bruce is brilliant in the air he's one of the best uh, players I've seen attacking a dead ball in the opposition box. He was phenomenal. And he heads it. It is going in, but at the end of the day, Hughes gets the last touch to take it over the line. Um, and it's interesting because in later years, Hughes actually credited Bruce with the goal. Um, but that was, the, that was sort of the weird dichotomy with Hughes where he was aggressive and intensely competitive. But cool, was it? Cool, it was also a bit of a modesty to Hughes actually, and he was very quiet off the pitch, but I'd give it Hughes, he got the last touch before the yeah. ball went over the line, no, so it's his, his goal.
0: goal. It's Hughes' goal, yeah. definitely,
1: 100%. I described it in the piece that I'd written as actually a really just, a great piece of just sense of forward opportunism, you know, Ruvan Nistroi scored a few goals like that, it just, just pounds when something happens, you get on it. Listen, it's i tell you what, if that was Filippo Inzaghi, he'd be claiming that goal all day long.
0: Speaking about Ruiz van Nistro, I'm delighted you brought him up. Seven minutes later, Hughes scored again. Um, he, rounded, oh. he rounded the goalkeeper, scored from a very, very tight angle. And it was like one of the finishes that Ruben Isleroy um, scored when he played for Manchester United. Of course, this is Bisquets, the, the father of, of Barcelona and Spanish midfielder Sergio, who who actually I wanted to bring up uh, in a question for you, Mike, because I thought he, he, he was standing quite small in the goal. It was clear with United having Brucey and players that were so strong in the air that they were going to use that as an outlet whenever they could. Yeah, so Busquets
1: wasn't a big guy. He's about five foot ten, so he's quite small for a goalkeeper. And uh Zarate was a world class goalkeeper, and more aggressive and commanding, and a more traditional kind of goalkeeper. And United, you know, Busquets was more of a. Um, Cruyff always kept him around because he could pl- bring the ball out of his feet. I thought he had a poor game, Busquets. I think he's he didn't command his box. I think he was all over the place for the He's first awesome, goal. Awesome. And then he comes flying out of the goal for the second goal. I mean, surely what he what he would have wanted to do would be to wait for Hughes to advance closer to the area and then come out low, knowing that he had two Barcelona players defenders behind him to try and maybe force Hughes to either chip the ball over him or just hit the ball at him. Um it was always said with Hughes that he tended to score great goals and he scored a lot of great goals I mean it was interesting the commentary, the ball, the pass by Robson by the way it's to fantastic. play in is, yeah. he just dinks this delicate little chip through ball and it, <laughs> it's incredible because I think it's um, I think it's uh, Eusebio and Koeman are, are just there and then suddenly he just chips the ball over and through them and they kind of turn around like what the hell was that? <laughs> was something that's always overlooked with Robson he was that he was technically I, I mean for me he was the all-round in his in the 80s he was the all-round best footballer in England I think once Kevin Keegan had wound down Brian Robson was England's best player and by the way you know one of the great what-ifs is the 86 and the 1990 World Cups for England he got injured in the first group or second group games in both of them and what kind of a difference would it have made for England to have had a fully fit Brian Robson? Um, because Bobby Robson, when he uh, did his own England dream team years later, when he was asked, Brian Robson was in it. You know, mm. he was a first <laughs> pick for him. You know, he was the England's best player, and that's not to discredit someone like David Platt. He was a good player. He replaced him in 1990, but Brian Robson was a world-class central midfielder. He was one of the best. He could do everything, and he did. The thing that Roy Keane used to do, he was able to play these passes where if you watch them, you think he's put quite a lot of power on the pass. But what he was actually doing is he was giving the centre-forward the opportunity to be able to turn and run on to the ball towards the goal without losing any momentum. And you see when Hughes picks up this ball, even though it's a delicate chip pass, it's weighted just perfectly where there's pace on the ball. Hughes can pick it up, turn, head towards the goal without having to lose any momentum... Carlos Busquets, no idea what he's doing, he comes lunging in like the karate kid, he's completely missed Mark Hughes, and one of my favourite bits of commentary is uh, Brian Moore goes, oh I think Hughes has run the ball too wide here, and then he just arrows the ball into the bottom corner, it's an incredible finish, because you remember, you think well it's an open goal, but there's still, still two Barcelona players in the way. You could still uh, feel
0: the atmosphere watching back at the game when that ball trickles in, and you can see afterwards really Barcelona. Although there was a late scare, um, Barcelona really lost the run of themselves and oh, the they lost backers, that big yeah, time. completely. And, uh, and 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 then the late scare came, but but like, Cumin scored that free kick. I I, I do believe the goalkeeper. Sealy was it was in trouble anyway. He couldn't. He, he was he wasn't moving properly throughout the whole game. You could see after he was taking kickouts and so that they um, just wasn't comfortable standing on his leg. And sub so goalie then Gary Walsh was warming up, and yeah. that was during the time where Clay and Blackmore cleared the shot off the line. You know, United were had their backs against the wall big time here.
1: Yeah, they did. They did. But by the same token, I mean. So the goals were 67 and 74 minutes for United, and then Cummins scored about five minutes after Hughes from a free kick. It was deflected, wasn't it? I just imagine it was. Yeah, deflected, it was slightly. Kick. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. But um, the goalkeeper got
0: across the line. He crashed off the post almost, but, but yeah, he, he did. He, he didn't seem. He didn't seem, you know, no, fit to play. He wasn't moving well. But I mean,
1: United had given Barcelona a warning shot before the first goal. Lee Sharp had a good chance. Where um, there was a bit of a miscommunication between Busquets, Busquets again, and uh, Alichenko, one of the defenders, and Sharp um, should have maybe hit the target. Actually, here. he puts the ball into the side netting, but that was that was the, there was a warning shot there. And Barcelona were well into even before the first goal, were engaging in tactical fouling all over the pitch. You can see where Guardiola got that from, because um, they were just every time United looked like they were building up ahead of steam, they would just foul someone.
0: I read um, too, sorry to interrupt, I read too that Johan Cruyff had suffered um, a heart... Op, or had, had he'd had a double heart
1: bypass. Yeah, just this before he Because, um, those that don't know, Johan Cruyff was an incredibly heavy smoker. Um, Smokes a phenomenal amount of cigarettes. Um, I think something like one or two packs a day. Um, which, I, I just can't even get my head around that. <laughs> and he was still sat on the bench. It always There was a similar story in England where when Graeme Souness was a manager at Liverpool... And this is where it started falling apart for Liverpool. Um, he had like a he had a double heart bypass, and then he was told not to go back for the rest of the season. And he didn't, he goes back two weeks later, I think, or a week later for like an FA Cup semi final against Everton. <laughs> they never they won, but Everton took the lead, and you can almost see soon as sat on he's his little his have no heart attack again. getting peel over. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. <laughs> I remember the um, I remember the comedian Bob Mills, he's a big late Northern face, big football fan. was talking about, it. he's saying, oh, you can see his face just going white. It's like he's going to have another heart attack again. And it must have been a moment where Christ, like, oh Jesus, somebody get me, someone get me a pack of twenty Marlboro Reds for God's sake. Especially when Hughes got the second one because I love Hughes' celebration. He just kind of, he just sort of trot, he gallops along to the United fans, which are, to be honest, about two thirds of the ground, and just kind of. Frosts his arms into yeah, the air, standing nice. there. <laughs> it's just like he is loving this. He is absolutely loving this. And then Barcelona just proceeded to try and kick the shit out of him. I mean, literally a minute after the goal, Jose Baquero. Yeah. I mean, he tries to injure Mark Hughes here. I thought he tried to injure him. It was a really, really nasty challenge. And how he didn't get it, he got a bucket, which means the referee saw him do it and punished him. And I'm like, it was a red card. It's like two Dif- red cards. Different times,
0: different times. A lot of the stuff that you have seeing going in this game, and I really enjoyed that. Aspect yeah, it, of it.
1: Yeah, I know that. But even then, the commentators were saying he is very lucky to oh, be. Oh, of pitch.
0: course. But but that's what I'm saying though. It that was an aspect of, that I'm gathering from watching these games that we're doing. We're doing most weeks now that yeah. I'm really enjoying is It it's, it's that kind of sense of these guys are know, really working hard. You know, it's a tough, tough game.
1: You know what really made me laugh about this was that he does that, and then Brian Robson decides he's going to exact retribution by kicking Eusebio Sacristan up into the air (laughs) about a minute afterwards. He then gets a yellow card for that. (laughs) So it was like, okay, you're going to put one of of our players, I'm going to kick one of your little small midfielders halfway into the stands for it as revenge. It was like, that's what you're going to get. And um, yeah, and and there was almost a bit of a retribution about the free kick that we conceded when they scored. I think it was insul Robson again He's booted one of the Barcelona players because there was another couple of... Ch- I think Salinas put one in on Hughes as well. I don't know what Salinas was doing back there, but he put one in on Hughes as well and he didn't get a bucket. He was quite lucky. And then <laughs> suddenly we just booted one of the other Barcelona players on the edge of the box and they scored again. And yeah, you're right. There was a back-to-the-wall stuff, I think, for for a while until... United play a ball through um Hughes evaded what can only be described as an attempted assault by Albert Ferrer, who just missed him completely. He sort of caught him a bit, but you know and the reason I think the people even the commentators thought the back air on him was so bad it's like you've managed to leave Mark Hughes on the ground, which is not an easy thing to do. You know he was not someone that would go down holding his leg if you if you put one in on him because he would just put one back on you. He avoids that, and then Nando, he just basically wrestles him to the ground. He just, like, jumps onto his back and just pulls him and pulls him. And it's funny, because for about five yards, Mark Hughes still refuses to go down. Nando's, like, hanging off the back of him until eventually he manages to get him down. <laughs> I don't even think he even waited for the referee to send him off. I think he knew immediately. He was like, as soon as he did, it's like, oh, this is a red card. But it was—I kind of get why he did it because Hughes was in; he, he would have scored. I think that would have been a hat trick had he gone in for it than the goalkeeper. Because I think he'd had—I think mentally, I just had this vibe that Busquets was just shot. So if Hughes had got in for a one-on-one, he would have scored. And I think Nando knew that, and he was a good defender, Nando. But he was like, all I can do at this point is foul him because he was galloping away. <laughs> but it was—that's how strong Mark Hughes was. He's got another full-grown man. Just hanging off his back for about five or six yards, and he still refuses to go down. It's just one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite red cards ever. Um, I think along with um, a United Arsenal game where Michael Sylvester head butted Freddie Youngberg and busted his nose.
0: I think I think it's important to stress too. We did mention that this was the cusp. United you know, being on the cusp of of Ferguson's greatest years. The this real start of success under his reign. And, and the buzz in which you see after the match, the United had had come out of the game victorious. Do you know, it, it, we did go on, it's a great thing, shortly after. We were second in the league the, the following season. Yeah, won the we league, league Cup,
1: I think, as well, the league, league after as well.
0: Champions in, in 1993, Do you know, so did, this was the, the start of something special.
1: Yes, I think so. I think so, more so than the FA Cup, actually. Because I, I wonder whether we'd, if we'd have not won the cup, in this cup this year, whether it would have been the same. But it was, we'd suddenly, Ferguson was getting the players into the pattern of always competing and winning silverware every season. Yeah, and,
0: and the thing too, I want to I put it this way as well, because you look at what Sir Matt Busby did in 1968 and, and United becoming the first English team to win the European Cup. With, with Ferguson winning the Cup Winners' Cup, it was almost like, <clears throat> it was that kind of moment for him. It was a start, the United were stamping their authority on Europe becoming the... In, in the first season after that, they're allowed back into Europe after the Heysel disaster and winning the Cup Winners' Cup. That was a massive statement for Ferguson.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, and it was again um, him beating, you know, him going into a final as an underdog and winning. Um, and I think he, I think he, you know, he really liked that aspect of it as well because he liked to be able to build a siege mentality. Um, which would then get the players just thinking we're gonna. No one thinks we can win, so we're gonna make sure we we put one in. I feel like um, I want to
0: do a Roy Keane moment there with that phone ringing. You're not gonna answer it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You're <just> gonna <laughs> let it ring
0: out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, could be, it could be soldier.
1: It's just an Amazon man ringing the doorbell, but it's not for my flat. It's for another flat, so I'm just not gonna answer it. He's just ringing the doorbell because um, basically because whichever flat he's trying to deliver to. He's still stood out there. I can see it on the camera. Whatever flat he's suddenly delivered to hasn't answered the buzzer. But, you know, I'm busy. Um,
0: (laughs) Any other notes from this game, Mike, before we wrap it up?
1: I think Ferguson's tactics are absolutely spot on in this game. Mm. He played this game brilliantly. I think Ferguson, in the reason the first half was a bit cagey, because that was exactly how Ferguson wanted to do it. We've spoken about before, Ferguson's biggest strength was his flexibility and his versatility and his ability to be able to come up with different game plans for different games. And you could see that here. It's sort of one of the things I would highlight, somebody didn't feature in this game, was Neil
0: Webb.
1: <clears throat> when Neil Webb was brought to the club, he was not only seen as the future of the United midfield, he was seen as the future of England's midfield. He was seen as a future England captain. Yeah. And it just never worked out for him in the end. I don't really know why... Um, I think maybe and even though I was I think I think was four years old when this final happened but I think if you maybe spoke to United fans who went to games regularly they'd be able to tell you why it never worked out because he was brought in oh god he was brought in I want to say around the same time as he came in the same summer as Paul Ince he came in the same season actually him and Ince came in the same season but it was interesting how Webb never kicked on whereas Paul Ince did And it's just one of those sort of sliding doors things that you know, that was pretty much the end for him as a United player. You know, he didn't feature in this game and Insom Robson was cemented really as the partnership for Manchester United going forward until obviously Roy Keane came to the club two years later. So basically be a direct replacement for Brian Robson. But that was originally what Neil Webb was supposed to be. He was supposed to be Robson's replacement, but it just never happened, it never happened and um, I think that was one of the notes, one of the main notes two of the main notes that I have from the game I think the only other thing that I would say was um, for me, obviously the talk Mark Hughes he was absolutely brilliant and clearly you could see in the second half as really relishing being the centre of attention in the game but I just thought Brian Robson was absolutely magnificent in this match he was incredible
0: no, absolutely. I think I, re- I really enjoy looking back at this match and, and the 1977 FA Cup final we did last week. And I think we're going to do another game next Thursday, Mike. Um, I'm going to let that open to some of the listeners on, on Twitter. You can follow us at, at the Strattycast and let us know what game. Um, otherwise, we'll come up with one anyway because I, I do look back, I do enjoy reflecting on these games and seeing certain figures that we kind of. We've seen the icons of Old Trafford series, but, but looking back at a full match and seeing them in full flow, you mentioned Robson. Ince was fantastic too. Um, you know, great great match to watch. And as well as that, we'll have um, the link of this game, <clears throat> which you can watch too. We we put the link on ACast and Spotify and stuff, so you can watch it. it it's free online. It's via Daily Motion. And um, Mike yeah. actually sent me a link to that, so I'll make sure that gets out, and you can watch this yeah. game yourself.
1: And I think it's important to watch as you said, foot, the, the 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 side the news cycle of football now is so fast and recycles so quickly that people almost forget about great players from fifteen, ten or fifteen years ago. Yeah. Like you almost forget say how great um like Ronaldinho was, for instance. But look at the proof of Barcelona. On social
0: media, Mike. Look at look at the guy uh, I can't think of his name on the top of my head that um, came out suggesting that that Ryan Giggs was overrated. You know, I spoke to Luke oh, about yes. this. Oh, yes. You know, I'm
1: not even going to mention his name yeah, because I don't want to it. give him the oxygen. Basically, he was a substandard footballer whose own bad attitude torpedoed his career
0: yeah.
1: and then went to be a boxer. And now he's coaching some non-league club somewhere. Um. And I would expect that, considering his lengthy diatribes that he put on Twitter about his views on the game, I would suggest that is as high up in the game as he is going to go.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. On that note, Mike, how can people follow you on social media?
1: Well, obviously, follow the podcast account at StrettyCast. Most importantly, first of all, I mainly run that account, uh, although you do a bit bit of stuff on there as well. Um, You can find my icons of Old Trafford columns on Stretty News. The Mark Hughes one is going live today. So I'd encourage you to read that because I think, as you mentioned at the beginning, his story with Manchester United is um, a, a really interesting one, and I kind of split it into almost three acts, like a, like a drama, because it does feel a little bit like that, and um, you can also find me at Mycroft Homes. In the next few days, I will be sending out a review of the, uh, the latest Eric Cantona film as well, so... Keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, did you I'm going to send it to you to put it on Street News website, but I think I will link it on my own website as well.
0: Dude, no problem.
1: Com. But um, it's actually a pretty decent film.
0: <laughs> did you watch it with the subtitles or did you watch it with the awful dub?
1: No, I watched it with the subtitles. I don't <laughs> mind subtitles in film, and I, you know, obviously, being the hipster cinema viewer that I am, I love a bit of um, I love a bit of world cinema, um, and I'm a big fan of uh, French cinema, particularly so. Um, yeah, I watched it with the subtitles and to be honest, I would encourage everyone to do it the same Um, one thing that might help you a little bit is if you're watching from your laptop it seems like a small note to make is maybe plug your headphones in because it will just help you kind of get into the pattern of absorbing everything that is going on even with the subtitles a lot quicker, Uh, if you've got a really good sound system hooked up to your Blu-ray or whatever or your laptop at home I would do that, you want to I always find the easiest way to get into world cinema when you're using subtitles is to do that because the dubs are generally always awful. Um, I always One of the most famously bad dubs I ever came across was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, um, which is a great film. It's a wonderful film. But watch it with a dub and it just completely spoils it.
0: <laughs> you can follow me over on Twitter at O'Donnell Dale and at the Stretty News account as well. as at Stretty News. Of course, follow StrettyCast on Twitter as well and become a Patreon member help support the podcast at a small cost that's patreon.com forward slash 30 news and we'll have another episode coming out monday so it's monday and thursday every week um it looks like we're going to be reviewing a few more of the the historic games while we can before the football action returns so i guess maybe two more weeks of of these kind of podcasts but we'll definitely spice it up in the future we'll throw a few of these into the mix because i think it's it's nice to reflect uh, on some of the big games and I know we, we haven't done a game yet, have we, which, you know, uh, lost. So we'd have, we'd have to throw one of them into the mix, I suppose. Oh, you
1: mentioned one, and um, I think, yeah, we should cover it, but I just remember how angry it may be when I watched it, if it's the FA Cup final that we mentioned yeah. briefly the other day, because yeah. um, we should have won that game, <laughs> and it
0: makes me really angry. But I suppose, too, just add it to the mix, too. It feels like that when we're doing these podcasts. And you're watching a game, and there's no football on at the moment. And I don't know if this will be the same for the listener, but it, it there's a nice feeling that United are winning every week, and we're winning big games every week, and we just yeah. got Barcelona and won the Cup Winners' Cup this week. That, that's what it feels like when you're covering it again. Yeah, um, yeah. The previous
1: week we stopped Liverpool winning the treble. Yeah,
0: yeah. All these great things, and uh, the whole, I hope that feels the same way for the listener. So yeah, well I'll add the link um, to this full match in full on from Daily Motion on the podcast and descriptions you'll, you'll see that via Apple Podcasts Spotify or go on to Acast online you got it there as well beyond all of them so yeah until next week have a safe weekend and we'll speak to you again soon come on you reds
1: Sports Social Podcast Network